Well, good evening. It's good to see everybody that's here tonight. Glad to have you with us there online, whether you're on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, all of those different platforms. Be sure to heart, to like, to share, subscribe, follow us, give the thumbs ups there, all those things. That just helps to get the word out. Make some comments, uh, especially there on Facebook or Twitter, uh, and retweet it on Twitter. Uh, and then also welcome to those who are listening on our phone live streaming. We know we have several of those uh, who follow us at each and every service for those phone live streaming numbers. If you need that uh, number, please, uh, be f feel free to call the church office. We'll be glad to give that number to you. If you're in here in person and need that number, I have that and can give that to you tonight. Uh, I want to encourage you, if you have access to our church website, to go to highlandbaptistchurch.com. Uh, it's under the info tab that you can download this week's worship bulletin. Uh, you can download the children's worship bulletin, ages 3 and up and ages 7 and up. So be sure uh, to get those downloaded. And then also don't forget the prayer list is there under that info tab for tonight. Uh, it's been updated and been uploaded, so be sure to get that downloaded and follow along with us. If you have any requests, be sure to comment there on Facebook. That's where we'll see those during the live part of our service uh, to be able to include those in the service. You can comment on any one of the platforms, uh, but we will only see it there on the live on Facebook. And then also encourage you to go to that far right-hand side, click the Give Online tab. You can do your regular online giving, uh, your giving for Lottie Moon Christmas offering for International Missions. Uh, we're soon to have uh, the Annie Armstrong Easter offering for North American Missions, as that's going to be coming up pretty quickly. Easter comes early this year, and so I uh, want to encourage you to be praying about giving towards our offering for North American Missions with Annie Armstrong. And then don't forget the Hoosier One cards, if, especially if you're here in person. If you want one of these at home, call the church office. We'll be glad to mail you one of these uh, so you can also participate with us in this. Uh, but if you're in person, pick up one in front of the pulpit here. If you've not done that already, maybe you want to do multiples of different ones. I encourage you to do that also. We keep putting those on the cross over here. I think I have one more in the office uh, to put on later this week. Uh, but you just fill out the part that's blue here on the back side. Uh, write the person's name there. It's perforated. Tear that part off. And then write the person's name here on the bookmark that's left and pray through those 30 days of prayer there and read those scriptures to lead you and guide you in your time of prayer for those individuals. And so I want to encourage you to be praying for those friends of yours, those family members that you know that may be without Christ. And then in the month of March, we're going to be sharing with our whole church some of those names um, so that they can also be praying for those that are on this cross over here too. So Brother Mike, if you'll come and lead us. Take your hymnals and turn to 247. Let's sing, Come Thou Almighty King, 247. Ms. Pat. Mad. 
not able to get on my internet in here. I'm connected to the one in the office uh, and it's slow. So if someone in here can cue me if there's uh, some names that you see pop up on uh, Facebook Live. So I'm having a very slow uh, connection here. So if you uh, have your prayer list, hopefully there at home you do. I uh, want to encourage you to get it out, uh, to take a look at some prayer requests that we have on the list there. we got several uh, that we want to add and update uh, to our prayer list. You can see that we've kind of uh, removed some uh, that we knew we could uh, from the um, HBC family side there. So uh, we're just going to go ahead and go through all of those uh, names there, if you don't mind, uh, since we don't have as many uh, to have to go through. Uh, so we have Carolyn and S.W. Stone, I want to remember them in prayer, uh, Vicki Boswell, Mike Durham, Arthur Hargrove, any, any of these that you may have an update, please stop me and let me know. Uh, Miss Rosalie Moore, we were told uh, earlier about Miss Rosalie, want to uh, just keep her in your prayers as, as uh, things are, are changing for her physically, and, and so just keep her in your prayers as she's getting a little worse, and uh, Stuart had shared that with us uh, to be uplifting her. Uh, in our prayer, so please, if you would, to do that. And then also, um, wanna remember Miss Betsy Farrell, uh, David Hess, we changed his there. Uh, he is cancer-free, got to ring the bell uh, week before last, right? Uh -huh. Yes, and so we praise the Lord uh, for that, and so keep him in your prayers, but praise the Lord uh, that everything is going well uh, there. And then also remember George Duncan uh, with his uh, medical issues. Uh, remember Miss uh, Leona Ross uh, in prayer too. She's recovering at home. Mark Raymond with his medical issues. Miss Sandra Wells, uh, she's always usually uh, watching us on Wednesday nights too, so we're praying for her. Uh, Miss Jewel Farrell as they're still trying to figure out what's going on with her. Uh, Bill Warren, uh, he's uh, been here with us some uh, on Sundays, but still uh, covets our prayers as I've been able to talk with him a, a couple of times uh, about that. So remember him in your prayers. And then also, uh, Rick German, has anybody heard any updates on him? We remember he had his surgery back in December, but. That's what I was thinking that I had heard that he was doing better. Uh, so just keep him in your prayers there if you can, uh, and we'll get a more recent update on him. Brian Tate, who has some ongoing medical issues, uh, Cindy Jordan also, and then also uh, Wade Hall uh, is doing better. Uh, so keep him in your prayers uh, still. And then uh, Marlon Bates, he has surgery tomorrow, uh, hip, hip surgery, so keep him in your prayers. Uh, that's gonna be at Williamson uh, Medical Center, so keep him in prayers. And then Brother Jack Dowd, uh, you're having yours tomorrow too still? Okay, so he's having his heart surgery tomorrow. Do you know what time? 730 so 7.30 in the morning. Okay, so we want to keep him in your prayers, and uh, you'll receive a call out uh, on both of those uh, prayer requests, so keep, uh, keep both of those in your prayers tomorrow. Any other Highland Baptist Church family that we need to add? got internet now so I can see who's watching and who's commenting all right so on our friends and family side uh, we'll just go up a, a little bit on this one let me just give you from the bottom going up some uh, Angela Wallace is one that Leanne Wells had asked us to add to the prayer list uh, Angela is awaiting another CT scan uh, Leanne told me today on her lungs she still has a lot of other problems physically too and the family's asked to keep her in our prayer so that's a friend of of Leanne Wells. I want to remember Madison Barnett with Ewing Car sarcoma cancer. I remember Miss uh, Joanne Woodson uh, who's recovering from surgery. She, she had a phone today with a radiation oncologist and so I haven't talked with her to find out what they're going to do, what treatment. Okay, so she had an appointment with the oncologist today uh, for what the treatment would be and so we haven't heard word from that so keep her uh, still in your prayers. Bill Goff also was to have a follow-up from his treatments with his oncologist in uh, Charlotte, uh, and I have not heard yet from him today what the results from that were, uh, but just continue to pray for both him and Kay uh, Goff with her dementia. 
I also want to remember Ricky Hereford, who has seven or six treatments left, something like that. Uh, so keep him in your prayers with his radiation treatments. Andy Taylor, uh, who is Nancy Ritchie's brother with cancer. Uh, remember Doug Ray? Okay, so he's still recovering from his surgery, still weak, but it's going to take some time. Okay, and then remember Sandy McKinney, who's a friend of Judy Stockdale's, Laura Hendricks, who is the daughter of Becky Moffat. She's still having some cancer treatment, so keep her in your prayers. And then Miss Linda Ray? Okay, so she had emergency surgery this past weekend, uh, and this, uh, this is the fourth time she's had surgery. So keep her in your prayers as she still continues to recover uh, from that. Then we have Charles Miller, uh, who has some ongoing issues there, Matt Kohler's uncle. Uh, remember also Wilbur Warren, who's Bill Warren's brother, and he said he still needs prayer. Uh, has a lot of uh, lung issues and stuff. So uh, Kim Tucker, who's a friend of Stan Smith, who has cancer. Charles Blevins, uh, Christine Cranford with skin cancer. Uh, this is Patricia Durham's uh, mother, so keep her in your prayers. And then you can see several others uh, that are up the list uh, there on that side. Any others on the friends and family side? Okay, on the nursing home side, we have Mary Campbell at NHC, Peggy Eggleston at Life Care, Miss Bertie Davis, who is the queen of Brookdale today. <laughs> and so uh, they had a queen and king with their Valentine's celebration there, and she was the queen of Brookdale. So uh, keep her in your prayers. Uh, remember Miss Janet Carter, uh, who's over at MacArthur Manor in Manchester, uh, Floyd Prince and Sue Prince, who are at Morning Point. Miss Beverly Daniels is now at Morning Point. Uh, so keep her in your prayers. She seems to be doing uh, okay, uh, but she's got some good care there. Uh, her daughter's with her, and they've been trying to move a few things from the house to set it up there for, for her setting and stuff. So we praise the Lord for that. Uh, and then Miss Susie Barton, who's right across the hall from her, uh, she's uh, getting more settled there at Morning Point again. Uh, she's been back and forth a little bit, uh, but especially the, the evening times are worse for her, as you would know. And so keep her in your prayers. And then the word I got from Amy, uh, P Amy Peters, who is Myra Watson's daughter. Uh, and I saw Myra uh, the other day on Monday. Uh, she, we talked for about 20 minutes, but they have called in hospice and, and uh, things are progressively getting worse for her. And so they're already making some plans for uh, the inevitable that's to come. So uh, just keep Myra in your prayers and keep the family uh, there in your prayers too. Uh, any others that we need to update there that maybe you have an update? Any prayer requests you want to add tonight in here? Okay. So I want to remember, uh, you know, if you saw the Super Bowl Sunday, Kansas City won the Super Bowl and they had their celebration parade stuff today and uh, someone opened fire there from what we understand and 22 were injured one is dead so we want to keep the people of kansas city uh, in our prayers and those families that have been affected by this okay yeah i don't see anything either i did get connected there any others all right i don't see any there either so let's go ahead and go to the lord in prayer we've got a long ways to go through the book of zechariah here in chapter 14 tonight so let's pray heavenly father we just want to thank you for your grace and your mercy and your loving kindness father we just want to give you the glory and the honor for all that you're doing in our hearts and in our lives and we thank you lord for bringing us here tonight into this place to worship together to learn from your word to pray uh, Lord, together, where two or three are gathered, you are present with us. And Father, for you to hear our prayers and that our prayers would be effectual and fervent prayers, powerful prayers. And so, Father, I pray for your hand to be upon us uh, tonight. Speak your truth into our words, in, in your words into our hearts. Uh, Father, I pray that you will just uh, anoint your word in a powerful way to bring us, Lord, to a place of repentance, to bring us, Lord, to a more closer walk with you and to be encouraged in our walk with you also as if we know Christ as our Lord and Savior. And so, Father, we just want to come before you acknowledging that 
we don't always live up to uh, the, the relationship we should be having with you. We have sinned against you. There are things that we have not done that we should have done. And to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, your word tells us that is sin. And so we come before you tonight, Lord, not looking at one another and seeing whether I'm better than someone else, but looking at the holy, righteous standard of your word and being confronted with your word, acknowledging our sinfulness before you tonight and asking God that you would cleanse us, that you would forgive us and cleanse us with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Wash us as white as snow. Set us, Lord, uh, on the path to make right choices and not wrong choices, to live in a way, Lord, that brings glory to the name of Jesus, that we uplift the name of Jesus in everything that we do as well as what we say. And so, Father, we ask for uh, your forgiveness. We want you to hear our prayers. And so, Father, we come, on, come tonight asking you to, to make no hindrance be there between us. If there is any sin, Lord, that maybe we haven't thought of in our lives that we needed to confess, bring those things out into the light of the truth of your word that we might confess those things so that our, our, our prayer life with you uh, would not be blocked. And so, Father, we pray tonight as we want to intercede on many people who are on our prayer list we know that many of these are our physical needs and lord uh, each one of these divinely needs your hand to intervene and to touch them uh, to bring healing to their bodies and some lord who are who are going through the valley of the shadow of death lord we pray that uh, you will bring the ultimate healing to them that they would know christ as their lord and savior and that you would use these things that they're going through to be a witness and a testimony to all who are around them so father we pray that uh, your blessings would be upon these individuals. Touch them in, in a special way, Lord. I pray that you will uh, heal them physically, but Lord, we uplift them also and pray that you will give them strength emotionally and, and, and uh, also through just comfort and peace, uh, knowing that you're with them. Uh, Lord, I pray that you will wrap your loving arms around them and give them that strength that they need each and every day. Shower them with your grace and your mercy and, and make yourself known to them, Lord. I pray that uh, you will uh, meet all the needs that they have, whether it's financial or, or uh, other needs that they might have. Maybe there's family issues that are going on because of the illnesses and stuff. And so, Father, we just uplift all those things to you, knowing the truth of your word and the promise of your word, that your grace is sufficient. For all of our needs so pour out your grace upon each one of these individuals give them a hunger and a thirst for you draw them closer to you lord that even as they're going through uh, difficult times lord that their life and their testimony will be a witness to those around them to their caregivers uh, and lord to their family members so lord we pray for the family members that are walking alongside these uh, who are who are especially uh, going through these valley times lord we pray that you will sustain them and may they find their strength in you to keep pressing forward uh, one day at a time one moment at a time and father we pray for uh, kansas city and and the things that have gone on there today with the people that were uh, injured and killed there uh, the the other issues uh, too that have gone on in texas earlier today too with the a vehicle driving into a, a hospital and several people being hurt there father there's things that are going on around us all the time and i just pray that we would be burdened in our hearts to uplift those needs uh, before you especially uh, for the needs of the spirit lord that these individuals would know christ as our lord and savior and lord i pray that you would give us a uh, an urgency and a burden in our hearts to share with people uh, before it's too late because none of us know when that day nor that hour uh, will come for any of us nor when the trumpet will sound and jesus himself will come again so father i pray that we will be faithful uh, to be praying for the ones uh, that you lay upon our hearts that we would be faithful lord to to look for those opportunities to share our testimony to share what we know of the gospel with them and father i pray that you will use our testimony and our witness to bring many people to faith in christ lord we know that salvation is a work of the holy spirit but lord we know also that you've commanded us to be faithful to share the gospel so help us lord to be able to do that uh, to overcome any fears that we might have and just to share no matter what others might think or what others might say lord that it would be to your glory and it would bring good into those individuals lives as they would trust by faith in jesus that at the very least they don't have any excuse and we ourselves have been faithful uh, lord that we could stand before you with a clear conscience 
knowing that we've done everything we needed to do, said all we needed to say. And Father, I just pray that uh, you will have your hand upon us, Lord, in the days ahead. Bless the book of Zechariah tonight, Lord. We pray that you'll make it powerful, alive, sharper than any two-edged sword. And we just pray, God, for your will to be done uh, tonight. Speak to us, Lord, and give us this final word of encouragement from the book of Zechariah. May it be powerful for our lives to give us direction, to give us hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. I don't know if I said it earlier, but Marlon Bates' uh, surgery is at 11 tomorrow. So just so you'll know that, uh, the call-out will go out tomorrow morning. So take your Bibles, if you will. Turn to the book of Zechariah. <clears throat> Zechariah chapter 14. I've entitled this message, Restored. As you're going to see, this is our last look at this wonderful book of Zechariah and this wonderful message. This book has a lot of Old Testament apocalyptic literature in it. It speaks much of the heart of a prophet. Uh, it says a lot about God's attitude toward his people Israel. And then it carries right on in to the New Testament as God doesn't change. Uh, and so there's only one book, uh, one minor prophet separating uh, this book from the New Testament, and that's the book of Malachi. Uh, and so uh, the basic theme of the book of Zechariah, uh, just to remind you, is to sweep, uh, the, is a sweep, if you will, of, of Israel's history uh, from the time of Zechariah when the nation returns from Babylon uh, and, and their captivity there, right on until the establishing of the millennial kingdom that's off still out there in the future. And that's the subject of this 14th chapter, is what's going to happen in that final day there, uh, the, the establishing of that millennial kingdom. And so if you go back to chapter 1 in Zechariah, we started out there dealing with the people as they had come back. Uh, they were trying to rebuild the city, uh, which was in rubble, to rebuild the wall. And Zechariah came along as a great prophet of comfort and a great prophet of hope. And his message was to tell uh, the, the, the people of Israel what God uh, was going to let them, that he was going to let them rebuild, that God was going to uh, let them restore their city. But more than that, that God had an incredible future that was awaiting for them off out, far out in the distance when all of the human history will come to its climax. So now as we come to chapter 14 here, we really come to the climax. We come to the final uh, establishment of the millennial kingdom, the end of human history, uh, as it were. Things that are talked about in the book of Revelation, things that are talked about in the book of Ezekiel and, and Daniel. Uh, and it's a tremendous chapter because it is loaded with lots of prophecy. Now, some who have studied uh, the book of Zechariah, uh, some who have studied it, uh, they don't um, interpret this chapter literally. Uh, they try to make it symbolic because uh, they, and many in the past have done this uh, before Israel was established as a nation again, uh, but they tried to make this symbolic because they didn't believe in, in the, the restored Israel in, in their theology. They don't believe that God has anything left uh, for the nation of Israel itself and don't see a restoration of the people of the land in, the, in prophecy. But in doing so, in doing that, they're left with some very, very difficult problems. In fact, no less of a man uh, of God than Martin Luther himself wanted to approach the 14th chapter of Zechariah uh, in a figurative way. Uh, he wanted to approach it as symbolic language. And so he took a, uh, taking that figurative approach, uh, he confessed after writing this particular chapter in his commentary uh, fashion in these words, he said, in this chapter, Martin Luther said, he said, I surrender for I'm not certain of what the prophet speaks. End quote. In other words, he was approaching it from a figurative or symbolic angle, and Luther couldn't make any convincing sense out of it all. And so he went on in, in expounding the chapter, but he didn't think it could have any reference to the end times. He related it only to the period of the destruction of Jerusalem and all of the language, all of that was somehow symbol, symbolically uh, fulfilled around 70 AD. Now we see from what we have studied before about prophecy that many times when the prophets are prophesying about something off out in the future, uh, we've used that illustration that they're looking at the mountain range. 
So when you look at the mountain range from the valley, you just see the one set of mountains that are right there in front of you. But if you could see it from the perspective of an airplane, you would see that it's mountain after valley, then mountain and a valley and another set of mountains. And that's kind of the way uh, prophecy is in the Old Testament. Many times the prophetic passage would have something to do with the immediate time that they're going through. It would have something for a little bit out in the future and then something that is still far off out there yet to be fulfilled uh, in the end times. And that's the way you need to come to prophetic uh, passages in the Bible to approach them. And, and so uh, Luther, when he looked at this, he just thought, oh, this just speaks about uh, what happened in AD 70. Uh, others have felt the same way. The problem with it is that it leaves you with some very difficult issues to settle, which have to be resolved, but you could not resolve it if you look at it in a symbolic way. You're going to see some of those issues as we go through the passage tonight. So what I'm saying is this, is that the best way to approach this chapter and all of the book of Zechariah is to take it for what it says in its clearest literal meaning and leave it at that. Let the Spirit of God worry about how he's going to bring it all to Past because when you try to make symbols out of things, sometimes you do this and people do this in the book of Revelation, they try to make every little thing count for this or attest to that. Uh, your guess is as good as anybody else. And none of, none of it really makes uh, much sense. So as we come to chapter 14, I want you to realize what's happening here. In the last days of Israel's history, we're going to be seeing Israel regathered. We've already seen that in our days in, in 1949 when they were established uh, as a nation. Uh, they've established their nation under a grant given to them by the United Nations, uh, international pr uh, protection. Uh, they, are th they are there in, in unbelief, uh, as would be indicated by the prophets. Uh, they are awaiting the time of salvation, and it cannot come until Jesus returns. Uh, and they look on him in whom they have pierced. Uh, so uh, when you, you see those prophecies already in the book of Zechariah that we've looked at before. So you know that when that prophecy comes, it's not talking about the crucifixion. They've already done that. It's talking about when he comes again, they're going to look on him and they're going to see the piercing. They're going to see the nail prints in his hand, just like those who he appeared to uh, before he ascended to the Father. And so prior to that time, as we look at the prophecies, they're going to make a pact with a false messiah. We, in fact, looked at that earlier in the book of Zechariah. Uh, remember that back in chapter 12, where they would they make a, a pact with a foolish shepherd uh, that Zechariah talked about back there. They're going to make a pact with the Antichrist, uh, and everything's going to be going along fine during this seven-year covenant. But in the middle of that seven-year covenant with the Antichrist, uh, this foolish shepherd, this false messiah, is going to break his covenant with Israel. And when he breaks this covenant with Israel, he's going to require that they worship him and him alone. We've already seen that back in chapter 12 too. And so when the people of Israel refuse, he gathers the armies of the world together to march against Israel. He comes against Israel under really the command of Satan to exterminate the Jews, the people of God. And that leads then to a great siege on the city of Jerusalem and the land of Palestine, as we know uh, as the Battle of Armageddon. So what you see happening over there today, that's nothing to do with the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, so what do we have to look forward to? We've already seen Israel beginning to be regathered. We've already seen them establish their state. We've already seen some of the things uh, that have come to pass. They're there in unbelief. Some are still scattered even today. We know that their mentality is such as would be looking for someone who could offer them an international protection. And there is one day coming that individual. And when he comes, as we said, for those three and a half years, everything's going to be fine. And then he's going to cause them to go into chaos. He literally desecrates their worship, desecrates the temple. Uh, and when they, when they don't come to worship him, he's going to call the armies of the world to come and storm Israel. And it's precisely at the siege of Jerusalem that chapter 14 begins here. So here are the armies of the world gathered against Jerusalem. Now we learn back in chapter 13 that when the siege begins... It's basically successful at the start. Uh, there's a tremendous bloodbath. There's tremendous devastation. Uh, the book of Revelation talks about that. The, when, when you look at the, the Battle of Armageddon, it talks about the blood being in the valley there up to the horse's bridle for an area of about 200 miles. Uh, 
There's going to be bloodshed like the world has never seen at that battle, a holocaust in the land. There's going to be a seeming victory on the part of the Antichrist and, and, and his armies, uh, and at precisely at the point where the victory looks secure, that's when Jesus is going to return. And that's exactly what we have in the 14th chapter. So the chapter opens then with the defeat of Jerusalem, uh, this being stripped of her possessions, stripped of her honor, conquered uh, by, by the world's armies, and the conquerors, in fact, are enjoying their spoils, their treasures. They're having a, a big old time thinking, uh, we've won the battle, and that's just precisely when Jesus comes to turn the tide of the battle totally. So we're going to look here at this chapter. I want you to notice four major parts. The coming of the day of the Lord, we're going to see the crowning of the Lord as king. We're going to see the conquest of the nations. And we're going to see the character of the kingdom. Uh, and, and so that's what we'll be looking at first here in verse 1 down through verse 8. The coming of the day of the Lord. So the opening phrase begins, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. Now you'll notice some versions say it this way, the day of the Lord comes. And in fact, either way you put it, it's the same emphasis here uh, of what we've been seeing over and over that Zechariah has been talking about. The day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord is coming. It's kind of an announcement, if you will, all by itself. Uh, you can almost put an exclamation mark at the end of it and start the next phrase as a new paragraph, the day of the Lord comes. And so you've reached here in the book of Zechariah, the climax. Now, what is the day of the Lord? For those who may not have been with us before, uh, the day of the Lord is a term. It, it, mark it in your mind. It refers not to just one day. It refers to a period of time. We use that word day uh, in the same way. We talk about the day in which we live. You're not talking about a 24-hour period. You're talking about an era uh, of time. And so this is the day, the era of the Lord. Uh, in other words, uh, man has had his day, man has had his fleeing, and now it's God's time. The Lord is going to begin to do some things. And so the day of the Lord is that period beginning with the rapture of the church and extending through the millennial kingdom. It covers all kinds of events. It covers the tribulation, the great tribulation time. Uh, when the Lord takes back the earth. It, it covers the conquering uh, of the nations at Armageddon. The day of the Lord covers the judgment of the nations. It covers the establishment uh, of the millennial kingdom. It covers the reign of Christ on the earth for a thousand years. It covers the defeat uh, of Satan. It, it covers this whole end times block from the rapture to the end of the kingdom. That whole era in history is the day of the Lord. And that's what we're coming to here in chapter 14, that facet of the day of the Lord uh, that we're dealing with here. So we've already seen some earlier in the book of Zechariah at this particular point in the day of the Lord. We're at this time where Israel is under attack. They're under siege by the armies of the world. Not just one army, not just one group of people, but by the armies of the world. Now, if you remember, in Daniel, if you've studied Daniel before, which we have gone through Daniel before here on Sunday nights before, Daniel's prophecy, if you look at the book of Revelation, which we've also done uh, before, you'll remember that there are four armies that gather against Israel. Uh, the army of the north. What is north of Israel? You've got Syria, you've got Turkey, and even beyond that is Russia. Uh, and so it could have some to do with Russia. It could have some to do with those, those Arab nations north of there. Uh, we know that even now uh, Syria doesn't like the things that are going on right now and are, are ready to attack on Israel also and have had some uh, skirmishes with them. Uh, and so there's an armies to the north. According to Ezekiel 38, there are armies that are coming from the south. What's south of, of Israel? There's Egypt. Uh, there's the armies of the west. Uh, the revived Roman Empire. Uh, there's the armies of the east. Uh, what's east is you've got 
uh, Iraq, you've got Iran, you've got India, and even beyond there is China. Did you know that China is building a highway across that area of the world? Uh, my brother-in-law and sister, uh, Samantha's sister, uh, lived in uh, Pakistan, and China's pouring money into Pakistan, building their road across there and, and across northern India to go to the Middle East. And so it could be easily uh, that they could have access there uh, to the Middle East with their, their tanks and troops that way, much less the air support that could come in. And so uh, it's probably to do some with Iraq and Iran and some of those other uh, Asian nations there, but most certainly has to do with the largest military in the world, which is in China. There seems, though, as we begin this chapter, as this skirmish has happened, as this uh, siege has happened, it seems like there's a victory. And they seem to have won their day. They seem to have accomplished their goal. Because notice again what verse 1 says, okay? There's this day of the Lord that's coming. When the spoil taken from you will be divided where? In your midst. Now, it's very uncommon for an enemy to come in and conquer a place and then divide the spoils right there in the middle of town. But that's exactly what we say, see happening here. Usually they would haul it off, they would escape with their treasures, they would flee with their riches that they've gained. But they have such a sense of victory and such a sense of overwhelming confidence that they just plop right down in the middle of Jerusalem, feeling very smug, feeling very secure, and they begin to divvy up their treasures right there on the spot because they feel so confident that the victory has been gained. These are the enemies over Israel. And so they're sitting there seemingly with this accomplished victory, leisurely going through their spoils and treasures, uh, taunting, if you will, the, the remaining inhabitants of Jerusalem. And it's at that very moment that God begins to turn the tide of the battle and Jerusalem's adversity becomes God's opportunity. Look at verse 2, if you will. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Now, did you notice it there? There's a little hint here of something that's going on that might be surprising to the nation that is that they're, that why they're there, because they've been gathered by whom? Whom have these nations been gathered by? God. He says, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem. In other words, these nations are not there on their own. They're, they're not even really at this point accomplishing Satan's work. They're there under the sovereign control of God. And God has gathered them there for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons is, is that God is going to use them to purge out the rebels, if you will, among his people. Because when that great battle of Armageddon comes and when those nations come and, and they slaughter the ones they do, they're going to be dealing with those who are left, some, some who will be rebels in the nation of Israel. They're going to be cleaning out, and these nations are, and using, God's going to use them to bring discipline and judgment uh, upon those who are, who are unbelieving. And so God has gathered these nations with a Jewish purpose in mind, and that's to act in judgment against Israel. But secondly, he's also gathering them there ultimately to punish them as well. So God gathers them to act as, as judgment against Israel, even uh, as there's a time in history when uh, before Israel was used as, as a judgment against the nation uh, and to bring them to the place of judgment themselves. And so notice he says in verse 2, I'll gather all the nations. So they're going to be representatives from all the world. Uh, east, west, north, south, uh, they're all going to be represented there. Uh, the armies of the world literally are going to converge on that little area. And that doesn't seem remote so much anymore. Uh, it, it's not an impossibility by any means. And so you go on in verse 2, uh, and he goes on and continues to say there that the houses are going to be plundered, the women are going to be raped, Half the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. If you've ever read Jeremiah chapter 30, in verse 5 through verse 7, you read about a period of time called the time of Jacob's, anybody want to fill in the blank? Trouble. 
the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob is in more trouble now than Jacob has ever been. This is it. And four things happen. Number one, the city's taken. Number two, the houses are plundered. Number three, the women are raped. Number four, the half the city is taken as prisoners of war. It looks really, really bad. And these enemies are so smug, they're dividing their spoil. And then we come to the next part of the verse, and half are going to be spared. Did you catch that at the end of verse 2? So he said half of the city is going to go out into exile, but the rest of the people, the other half, shall not be cut off from the city. So earlier, Zechariah had told us back in chapter 12 that two out of three people would die of the whole nation of Israel. Two out of three throughout the whole nation would perish. Here, half of the city of Jerusalem. Look at verse 3. Then the Lord... So when everything looks its bleakest, when it looks like it's over, it's done, they've won their victory, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. Now God's not about to allow the enemy to destroy the remnant, the believing remnant, those who are uh, of the faith in the Messiah. God moves in and he goes forth to fight against those nations. And then verse 4 says, on that day, we see that phrase again, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mountain shall move northward and the other half southward. And so notice, first of all, where does he arrive when he comes? Where he left. Where did he leave from? The Mount of Olives. Remember, he was there with his disciples, and Jesus ascended into he the heavens, and the angels who were, who were there with the men, those followers, those disciples, said, Why, men, do you stand gazing into the heavens? This one who has ascended like this is going to return again one day in the same manner as you've seen him go up. He arrives first at the Mount of Olives where the ascension took place. Now, the Mount of Olives is a little tiny area in Israel. It's not like Mount Hermon. That's a great big huge mountain. Uh, it's not like Mount Carmel uh, that you can go up on that's huge and you can overlook the valley uh, of Megiddo. Uh, the Mount of Olives is a tiny area and, and it's very easy to visualize exactly where Jesus is going to come. In fact, from one valley uh, on one side of the Mount of Olives, clear over to Bethany. Remember Bethany where Jesus went before uh, he entered the city of Jerusalem uh, at, the, uh, at that time when, uh, when he came and people were celebrating him and, and praising him as, as the, the son of David. He was the Messiah uh, who had come and then just a few days later they're wanting to crucify him. Uh, there in Bethany where Mary and Martha uh, were at. So, so from one side of the Mount of Olives over to Bethany, to the other side of the Mount of Olives is a journey of about two miles. And so it's not big. It's not a big mountain to the east of the city. And that's where Jesus, the Messiah, is going to return. Now, it's wonderful to think of what that mountain could tell us if it could talk. Because all throughout history, it has been there. That same mountain uh, was the one on which Jesus shed so many tears night after night. It was that same mountain that he looked over to the city of Jerusalem and wept. Wept over the city of Jerusalem. That same mountain he shed tears on. That same mountain would know the denting of his knees as he prayed night after night after night there. It was that same mountain that heard the precious conversations he had with those disciples. It was that mountain that witnessed the agony and the bloodshed. That mountain must have been right there watching when he came out of the grave. That mountain knew in the days of his flesh the weary feet as they walked its path. That mountain someday is going to receive those same feet. Well, let's go on in verse 4 to see what happens when he gets there. What's going to happen? Remember what it said in verse 4? It said that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other 
southward. What does that indicate to us as happening? A great earthquake is happening. Did you know that God sometimes uses earthquakes to announce his arrival? The book of Revelation talks about similar things. In Revelation 16, 18, it says when you come to the final bowl uh, judgment that's poured out, the final act before uh, Christ comes, that final judgment of Armageddon, uh, this is the same time period exactly. And it says at this time, uh, there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, Revelation says, uh, such as was not since men were on the earth, so mighty an earthquake and, and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts. And the city cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon came in, in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island, Revelation says, fled away, and the mountains were not found, and there fell on men great hell out of heaven, every stone about a hundred pounds. Could you imagine hell stones about a hundred pounds? So in order to facilitate a hasty exit for those who are still undergoing the siege. Remember, half were taken, but half are still in the city. So to, to precipitate and facilitate a, a hasty exit for those people who are undergoing the siege, the Lord Jesus hits that mountain, splits things wide open. The Bible says he creates a valley, and God's people of Israel can flee right through that open pass, kind of like what Joel calls a valley of decision. And then notice verse 5. He says, And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. We're going to come back to that. So much packed in that one little verse right there. It, notice it's called the valley of my mountains in the Hebrew. In other words, there was one mountain. Now there's two mountains by splitting it. He forms it by splitting the Mount of Olives. Uh, they're going to see, they're going to flee uh, through that channel, through that valley. And the word Azal there in Hebrew means near. So it's apparently here that in this period of time, the location uh, very near to Israel on the east was known as Azal. So he's saying it is, is that that valley is going to split right open, right up near to the city. So that this remnant that's left there, they don't have to go wandering trying to find how do we get out of here? How do we get to this rift, to this valley that we can escape from the enemy? They don't have to run a long way down. They don't have to run up any hills to get to that open channel of escape. It comes almost right up to the city there, right near the city so that they have immediate access and they flee for the valley of the mountains that will reach us all, that will reach near Jerusalem. And then this. This has got to be one of the greatest things that you see here. I don't know if you caught it before, but look at the end of verse 5. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. <laughs> what do you think about that? That reminds us so much of what the New Testament tells us. You remember when the angel said, this Jesus shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go? You saw him left physically, he's going to return physically. You saw him leave personally, he's going to return personally. You saw him leave bodily, he's going to return bodily, literally, visibly uh, from the Mount of Olives. That's the way he's going to return. And this same Jesus here is called the Lord my God. It's, called, it's a picture here of his deity. He's going to come. And Zechariah sees the same scene that Revelation gives us from John when Jesus returns with his saints. That's what the end of verse 5 is talking about. In other words, when Jesus comes, who's he coming with? He's coming riding on a white horse, but he's coming with all of his saints. 
That refers to, 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 the, to those who are, who are of Israel who are righteous. It refers to the angels who are also called the holy ones. And it certainly, as we understand from Paul uh, and his use of the Greek term for saint, it refers to us as Christians who are believers who have gone on, who have been raptured. And, and so then at this very time when Jesus come and his revelation and all his saints are coming, uh, he's riding on this white horse with white robes and, and this fantastic glory comes out of heaven. At this very time, I believe the remaining remnant of Israel, the, the remnant of Israel is going to look up and they're going to see him in whom they what? They pierced. And they're going to mourn for him as an only son. And it's precisely at this moment that the events of chapter 12 take place when they look on him in whom they pierced, when a fountain of blessing is opened, when they repent. Then verse 6, on that day there shall be no light, no cold, no frost. In other words, as you continue on, he says there's going to be, it's going to be a unique day. We'll come and look at that a little more here in just a moment on the unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be be light. In other words, when Jesus comes, all of the stars, all of the sun, uh, the suns of the heavens are going to go out. The heaven is just going to be black. All the lights are going to go out. In fact, you can see this over in the book of Isaiah. We're going to be going back to the major prophets later. But Isaiah chapter 13, verse 9 and 10 says this, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. Isaiah 24 talks about this episode also. Joel chapter 3 talks about it. Matthew chapter 24 talks about it. And maybe the most clear passage in all of the Bible is in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 12 through verse 14 where it says, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, and there was a great earthquake, what we just saw, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as south sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth uh, as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. When you remove mountains and islands, which an, an island is that, isn't it? It's a mountain in the deep depths of the ocean. When all that's removed, what happens? It all becomes flat. And so in the midst of this blackness comes this blazing revelation of Jesus Christ with all his saints. And at that moment, Israel's going to turn and they're going to look and they're going to believe and they're going to turn to their Messiah and they're going to be wonderfully saved and spared judgment and gathered into his kingdom. The next verse, verse 7, as we said, there, sh there shall be a unique day. So it gives us the thought of a uniqueness of the day. It, it shall be a unique day. It shall be one day, uh, unlike any other day. The word in the Hebrew, one here, means one day, like only one of its kind. One unique day, like no other. In other words, the whole of nature is going to go into this imbalance. The whole thing is out of perspective. And all that we understand as, as night and day is coming to an end at that point. The stars are going to fall. The suns, the moon uh, are all gone. The light from them are gone. And Jesus Christ comes, and it's a new kind of day now. And he's going to come the de that day so that even when it's evening, it's going to be light. Why? Because he's going to be the light, the blazing light. And then notice verse 8. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. Jerusalem is going to be dramatically changed. So right in the middle of Jerusalem, where Mount Moriah is, that's the place where the Temple Mount is, right in the middle underneath that rock that's there, somehow God's going to crack open the ground create a gushing spring that's going to send rivers running in both directions to the east and to the west. And then it says living waters. You notice that? 
You know what that means in Hebrew? It means gurgling, running, flowing, rushing, bubbling water, not stagnant water. Ezekiel said that in the millennial earth, uh, there, will be the life, uh, there will be life-giving streams gushing out of the sanctuary. So Jerusalem is going to become the center of the world, and blessings are just going to flow out in all directions. What an incredible time that's going to be. And so we see the coming of the day of the Lord. Now, this will rapidly move us quickly here through this last part of the chapter. So you ready? The crowning of the Lord as king is what we see in verse 9 through verse 11. So let's read those verses. And the Lord will be king over all the earth on that day. Again, talking about that era. The Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimmon south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hanel to the king's wine presses. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. So the first thing that happens when he arrives, he's going to have a coronation. The Lord is not only going to be the king, in heaven, but in that day, he's going to be the king on earth. The king is coming. The Lord will be one, and his name will be one, verse 10 tells us. And this says that when that happens, when the kingdom is set up, the land is going to be turned like the Arabah. That's the word that's used here, uh, that when Christ comes, his tremendous earthquake takes place, and it creates that valley uh, running east. Mount Moriah somehow split. Water starts to flow every place, and the judgment of the nations takes place. And as a result of that great earthquake, the entire terrain from Gibba, he says, which is north, to Rimmon, which is all the way down south, is going to become like Arabah. And you may say, well, what in the world is Arabah? Well, Arabah is the name of the valley that is the deepest valley in the world. It runs way south of the Dead Sea, way south where it may be high in some places as 300 feet above sea level, down to the Dead Sea where it's 1,300 feet below sea level. It's the lowest, longest, flattest valley in the world. It's the flattest valley, obviously, uh, of, of any valley that low, because it's the only valley that low. And what he's saying is this, that all the terrain around Jerusalem, from Gibeah uh, on the north to Rimmon on the south, is going to be flattened, lowered to be made like that valley, so that Jerusalem is going to stick up like a diamond on a ring. And he gives the dimensions there that it once knew in its glory. It's not going to be some little village like it was in Zechariah's time. He's going to make it like some huge diamond. The whole land made flat and Jerusalem lifted up in the middle of that verse. Jerusalem shall be lifted up. And it says inhabited in its place. The implication of the Hebrew is peacefully inhabited. That's not ever happened and isn't happening today. What a day that's going to be. And you know what? People aren't just going to live in that city. They're going to live in all the countryside round about it. But Jerusalem will be like a crown, verse 11 says. So no more destruction, no more curse. Why? Because there's no more idolatry. There's not going to be any more apostasy. There's not going to be any more curse. This is coronation day. Not only is the Lord crowned, but the city's crowned. And it becomes the jewel of the earth. And Christ is crowned king and sits on the throne of that city. What a day. So the coming of the day of the Lord and the crowning of the Lord as king. And then finally we see the conquest of the nations. Well, not finally, there's still some more there. And we may have to get to some of that when we come into Malachi. But verse 12 says this, and this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their fat flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. You ever seen uh, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark? When they opened that ark, and what happened to those uh, Nazis? The same image. And on that great day, on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of, an, of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be 
in those camps. And so there's going to be this deadly plague uh, that's going to happen. And then he adds another thing that's going to happen, this great tumult from the Lord. The word tumult means a, a confusion, a dread. They're going to be so confused that they're going to grab the hand of their neighbor and they're going to rise up neighbor against neighbor. In other words, what's going to happen is there's going to be so much confusion at that moment that those who aren't instantly hit with this plague are going to find themselves killing each other. And then there's going to be this superhuman strength that's given to Judah. Judah's going to fight at Jerusalem and somehow God is going to give them this great strength uh, that they're going to fight and they're going to win. And the result in verse 14, the tables are turned immediately and here all the, are these nations counting all uh, that were counting all their, their treasures. Now the reverse occurs. All those treasures that they thought they had won and that they had gained, verse 14 tells us there that, that those, those inhabitants now are going to go out and collect the gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And then verse 15 talks about another plague that he adds that's also going to touch all the animals. Uh, it's going to touch all their possessions. The whole encampment is going to go. And that day perhaps has to do with some of their weaponry. And so we see the conquest of the nations. We see the crowning of the Lord. We see the coming day of the Lord. And we'll go ahead and catch this last one, the character of the kingdom. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts. We know that's prophetic. We know that's out there in the future. That has not happened yet. And to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. So here's a judgment that will come. They won't get any, any rain upon them. God's going to create a drought. Uh, they're going to have uh, a disaster. A and there might be a nation, he says. Maybe it's the nation of Egypt. He says, and if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with the Lord, which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feasts of the booths. And so uh, there's judgment that's going to come on Egypt. They say, we don't care if it rains. God says, okay, let's find out. And he brings judgment upon them. And then verse 18 uh, goes on to say, uh, says that. Verse 19 says, this shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. In other words, if you don't come to worship, judgment's coming upon you. And on that day, verse, 9, verse 20 says, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. Uh, let me just say something about that. Some, may, some versions may see holiness unto the Lord. That phrase was a very special phrase. That phrase was engraved in one place in all of Israel's history. The high priest Aaron had a turban, and on the front of his turban was a gold plate, and engraved on that plate were these words, holiness unto the Lord. What did it mean? It meant there was something about that man that set him apart from every other man. He was an uncommon man, especially holy, unique. There was no one like uh, this priest, holiness unto the Lord. But he says in that day, every single thing that exists is going to be holy. Holy like the high priest. Even the little bells that dingle on the horses, he's saying, are going to say holiness unto the Lord. What a day that's going to be. Isn't that the picture of Revelation? that the, the thousands of millions of people are going to be before the great throne and saying, holy, holy, holy unto the Lord. And then he closes in verse 21 and says, even every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. In fact, if you look at some other versions, you'll see that the actual word there is Canaanite. And that became a proverb in Israel for a degenerate person. In the kingdom, he's saying, there won't even be a sinful person. Why? There'll be no more sin. There'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more sickness. We'll be in the presence of God forever and ever. Ezra chapter 6, verse 14, says this in closing. We're told these words about Zechariah and about the message that he brought throughout this wonderful book. It says in Ezra chapter 6 and verse 14, And the elders of the Jews built and prospered, 
through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They were blessed by this book, and I hope that you have been blessed by this book also. What a powerful book. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the message of this prophecy in the book of Zechariah. And Father, I pray that we have been encouraged as the nation of Israel would have been encouraged when Zechariah gave this message, to remind them that there is a hope. Lord, it's a reminder to us that there is a hope for us, that no matter how bad this world gets, no matter how wicked things may seem around us, there is coming a day when the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, your only begotten Son, is going to come in the same way he ascended, and he's going to put those feet on the Mount of Olives, and it's all over. Father, I pray that we'll be ready when that day comes, when the trumpet sounds. Lord, that we'll be ready knowing Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. And we just ask your blessings upon us, Lord, to be encouraged to keep remaining faithful, knowing the promises of your word, remaining faithful to those truths, that one day we too will be in your presence forever and ever. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you so much for joining us there online. Hope you uh, received a blessing from that. We'll be back Sunday morning, uh, 9.15 is Sunday school. So come join us in person. 10.30 is worship uh, there online and on our uh, phone live streaming. So join us on any of those if you can. Uh, but we look forward to seeing you this Sunday uh, at either one of those times. You have a blessed week, a safe week, and we'll see you this Sunday.